Welcome to the Local Exposure Podcast. My name is Ronnie Pettit, and I'm your host. In this new series, I will explore the music of Appalachia. I'll travel the back roads and through the backwoods to meet, photograph, and interview the singers, songwriters, and musicians of the region. And I'm going to do it while living out of a 1995 Suburban with my English pointer named Hutt. If you want to find out more, check out the website, localexposuremagazine.com, or on Instagram at local.exposure.magazine. All right, on today's episode, we have Scott Lowe. Yeah. How you doing, Scott? I'm doing good. We're in my fly shop. Man, this is cool. Yeah. You've got a really cool setup here. Uh-huh. You've got fly fishing on your property. You have concerts. Concerts. Kids' summer camps. We got a little school bushing stand. Yeah. Uh, the, pl- the place is called Hatch Camp and Art Farm, for y'all that don't know me. How long have you been here? We're pushing eight years. Can you believe that? Isn't that wild? That is crazy. Uh-huh. Got two babies running around here. So you're about to release a brand new album. Yes, sir, the Appalachian Blues. Oh, really? I didn't even know the name of it. That's pretty cool, you know, considering that this project is exploring the music of Appalachia. Yeah, and I mean, I think I, it's called the Appalachian Blues because I started playing slide guitar and like studying Delta Blues, but then I found this thing called Piedmont Blues. Piedmont Blues is like from like here to North Carolina, and it's very major, happy sounding blues. It's not so like down in the dumps like the Delta Blues kind of are. Really? Yeah, the Piedmont Blues. Elizabeth Cotton uh, was was one of the first ones I found. The song Freight Train, which I actually found because Jerry Garcia from the Dead did it. And then I come to find out that the song Sugary by the Grateful Dead is actually a play on Elizabeth Cotton's Shake It Sugary, and they didn't give her any credit. So And, and Jerry realized this, and so he went and recorded like five or six other of her songs and gave her 100%. What? So Elizabeth Cotton, this little old black lady in central North Carolina, was getting these checks from these hippies in South San Francisco, and she'd show up in all these fancy dresses at church, and everybody's like, oh, dang, look at you, girl. And she's like, oh, yeah, these hippies from San Francisco just keep sending me checks. <laughs> That's funny. Oh, yeah. So, so yeah. by Piedmont Blues, is that related to, like, geography? Totally. Like the Piedmont area, Absolutely. not the mountains? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like the lowlands on the edge of the Appalachian Mountains, right? You know, it's kind of like South Carolina, North Hills. Carolina. Yeah. And so there's a whole, like, what I was listening to when you came in was just sent to me by my musician buddy, Caleb Cottle. It was called, oh my gosh, my brain. It's called the Fodrell Brothers, and they were from right up the road from him in Winston-Salem. And it's very, like, major happy-sounding blues. It's kind of this whole other side of the blues that a lot of people don't even really realize. is Because is, the blues, the, you say the blues, and that's a very large spectrum of music. 
Okay. You know, everything from Robert Johnson and Delta Blues stuff, Sunhouse, Buckle White, all that ranging to Chicago Blues, Memphis Blues, Kansas City Blues, the Modern Blues, which is like all these guitar shredders like Joe Bonamassa and Kenny Wayne Shepherd and all these like guitar virtuoso stuff, you know, which which I think is, is all part of the blues. And, you know, back in the day, pop music, all pop music was the blues. You know, like before there was pop, pop music, there was kind of the blues was what was on the radio. You know, it's kind of crazy. Wow. <clears throat> That's, you're blowing my mind. A, bu- a buddy of mine said, we were talking about this project, and he goes, man, RP, I, I'm really wondering where this project is going to take you. And I'm already, like, my head is spinning just the things you've just said. <laughs> oh, and we haven't even talked about, like, Appalachian music. <laughs> you know, we're talking about the lowlands a little bit right now. Well, let's go, let's go back to the beginning as far as you as a musician. Were you, like, a... Were you, doing this as a child? I mean, my parents had me in, like, Suzuki piano program when I was, like, five. Oh, You wow. know, I was doing Mississippi hot dog, Mississippi hot dog. What is no, that? It was, it was just a rhythmic figure they teach you. Actually, in my daughter's, my daughter's in a strings class, and they teach her pepperoni pizza, which is the exact amount of syllables, pepperoni pizza, Mississippi hot dog, same amount of syllables. It's just like a rhythmic figure they teach you when you start playing music. And so it'd be like, Mississippi hot dog, Mississippi hot dog, Mississippi hot, play Twinkle Twinkle Little Star with Mississippi hot dogs. (laughs) So that's where I started. But then I like, when I was in fourth, third or fourth grade, I was living in Pennsylvania, central Pennsylvania, and they started you on strings super early in that public school system. So like I was playing viola and cello in elementary school. And then I started, and then I moved to Michigan and started playing trumpet and viola at the same time in the orchestra and the brass band. And then by the time I reached, like, I think I started playing guitar when I was, like, 15, 14, 15, and that pretty much killed every other instrument. It was like, all right. Because you liked it so much? Yeah, and it was so, I mean, MTV, this is like, you know, this is 1988, 89, 90-something eh, maybe. But, I mean, MTV and grunge and, like, guitars were all over, you know, all over in my face. Yeah. And, I mean, I love some Nirvana and Pearl Jam back in the day. When you were, like, in that fourth or fifth grade doing all that, were were you were you in love with music already, or was it something that you were learning because they – put you in the class and you just went from there? Yeah, I've always been attracted to music. I think um, I remember going to like uh, Opryland up by Nashville back in the 80s and I still have some vinyl of bluegrass bands that I made my parents buy me. But I mean, I had, they got me like a Fisher-Price record player when I was super young. Are they musicians? Like church musicians, like white people church musicians. <laughs> I can hear so, the organ. <laughs> yeah, and like just singing in the choir and stuff. It's not like getting down like other kinds of tricks. That's really interesting because I th- are, are you good at math? Oh yeah, math and math comes so easy to me. I like never crack my math book. I had this. And like, music is very mathematical. That's that's what I was gonna say. Is I always felt like music is math mm-hmm. with feeling. 
Music is math with feeling, <laughs> which is one of the reasons I, it's to me, it's like a foreign language. Yeah. I mean, it takes a lifetime to master. I mean, some people are, you know, that like 0.1% of people are like amazing as soon as they pick it up. Right. A lot of us have to work hours and hours and years and years and years. You know, there's a couple of years in my life where all I did was practice like nine hours a day. You know, I was literally like practicing three, four hours before I went to music school, go to music school for four or five hours, go home and practice for four or five more hours. Wow. You know, I mean, it was legit. Like, I was musicking more than half the day for like a couple of years, like training. What are you getting better at when you're practicing? <laughs> there's, a, there's a Charlie Parker quote that says, you got to learn it all to forget it. You know, because like you don't want to be out there playing, thinking about C major scale, D major scale, whatever, you know, like you want to be feeling the music because music is meant to make you feel something. Is it is it kind of like rubbing your stomach and patting your head at the same time? No, it's like it's like it's like anorexic knowledge, like you want to eat it all and then get rid of it so you're not heavy from it. So it's like second nature to you, right? So, so it's basically like you practice, 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 but then you get on stage and you don't think you don't want to think about it. You just want to play the song, you know. You want to feel the song and not be like G chord, C chord, D chord. You know, it's like I want that to just be like the song, you know, and not like me like putting all these little things in boxes and having to click these boxes in my. I want them to flow naturally from me, you know. It's 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 a crazy thing because like I'm I mean I learn songs, I learn multiple songs a week of the masters because I feel like that's how you, like I mean, dude we're so far down this road of music like how how do you make an original thought, you know it's like mm. how are you gonna make an original thought that is going to trump Led Zeppelin, or mm. whatever you know it's like, so it's like it's it, I I feel like I have to study these masters to be able to get that into me then forget it and make my own music, right? Or not forget it, but, like, not be dwelling on it or, like, trying to rip them off. You know, a lot of the stuff out there is is a lot of, like, copy-paste type stuff, you know, especially pop music. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Have you ever seen the videos where it's like, this one chord progression has been in 79 number one hits? Yeah, I've seen where they compare or they play different songs simultaneously and they're the same. Totally. You know, and it's like, I mean... There's so many songs that have been like, oh, that's a great song. It's like, well, it's basically this song. They just put different words over it or whatever, you know. But it's hard. It's hard. There's only so many chords. There's only so many combinations of chords. But it's like, you know, like you look – I look back at like the past couple of years of like musicians that have made waves, mm -hmm. you know, and like Oliver Anthony did with his little protest fudge round song. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Which is the same chords as Wagon Wheel. Uh, no shit. Yes. I had no idea. Sang with anger, right? Or like some kind of angst, In, right? Uh, the, okay, that just blew my mind because you knew that. As soon as you heard that song, you knew oh, that. Oh, yeah. And I still don't know that. Know right. that. I mean, I could listen to it I right I mean, the now. melody's completely different, but yeah. the chords are the same. Okay. You know, but I mean, it's like, I mean, I'm playing the blues, dude. I can't really talk about much about stealing. I mean, the blues are like. I tell people blues are like Mexican food. It's just you stack the chords a little different, <laughs> like a taco or quesadilla <laughs> or whatever, you know. <laughs> so, I mean, the blues are, I mean, it's one, four, five. Uh, you probably don't know what I'm saying, but it's like those are the chords. You use the one chord, the four chord, and the five chord, and that's it. That's your chords, your blues song. Yeah.
thanks for explaining that because I don't want to pretend like I know things I don't know about music and I'm and part of my reason for doing this project and exploring it is to not hide my ignorance so that you know I can learn but I think but I think it's like you have to look at it like I mean I look at like fly fishing as like a journey you know like like no one walks into fly fishing and is great you've got you got to know this as well as anybody yeah you know it's like fly fishing takes time and effort and practice and repetition it's the same with music you know you got to keep on adding layers to your onion you know you just got to keep adding knowledge and experience and is that is that what they call wisdom i don't know you know did you have a band when you were like in high school or whatever oh yeah i mean first band i had i think i was a sophomore freshman it was called jerk water it was kind of like funky punk rock like we actually had a drummer who was obsessed with the Beastie Boys. We were just talking okay. about them, and but the two other dudes and and I was kind of like all over the place. I've always kind of been all over the place. Like I love, I listen to all kinds of music, but the other two guys were like straight up crusty punk dudes, and it was kind of this like funky punk where we'd have like kind of these Beastie Boys breakdowns in the middle of a punk song and stuff, you know. But I mean, we played like the high school talent show and maybe like a couple house parties. You know, but I mean, I the list of bands I've been in in my life is very, very long. I lived in Athens, Georgia for four, 13 years and was in 25 bands there. Wow. So how do you pick a, a genre? Or do you just, or, you know, it feels like, it feels like there's like a, it's almost like declaring a major in my mind. Where like, <laughs> once you pick it, you know, you're stuck with it. I mean, I, I don't think that's necessarily true because I mean, a lot of, I mean, a lot of people will call it crossover artists or whatever. Yeah. You know, when you go from country to pop or Taylor Swift or whatever. And they lose their country accent. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, I think I've been a student of music a long time. And I think, you know, I started out. Okay. So the reason I started playing guitar is I went to the Kalamazoo State Theater when I was 15, 16 years old. And the first show I went to saw was Buddy Guy, who's an old blues guitar player. And Kalamazoo is just right across Lake Michigan from Chicago, which is like home of the blues. Okay. Or one of the major ports of the blues, okay? And Buddy's band comes out on stage and they start playing and Buddy comes through the back of the back of the theater, polka dot, black and white Stratocaster, polka dot, silk shirt, overalls. He, I'm sitting on the aisle and he stops like right here in my ear and just lays into that guitar and it was over. There was nothing anyone was ever going to do to make me stop playing guitar, you know. In that same summer, I saw Bob Dylan and Fish in that same room. Wow. So like if that's like that's kind of like <laughs> the Trinity to me, you know. And like and it may I may not even listen. I'd actually listen to all. I don't really, really listen to a lot of Buddy Guy. He did put out a really great record couple years ago with a bunch of great cameos from all kinds of cool people on it but and then he retired but uh you know I think that's that's when I started playing guitar and I really you know like I went into it wanting you know like I was listening to Bob Dylan Bob Marley freaking all these like revolutionary musicians they're like I want to be like them you know but it's like I slowly learned the music business is rough and like making a dent or getting people to pay attention to your song 
when, you know, like Bob Dylan and Bob Marley, they have multi-million dollar corporations behind them, you know, at this point, you know, and they're always going to be a household name. We're like, how do you get Scott Lowe to be a household name or get people to listen to that? You know, and and so I think I've, I've always been searching for an original sound or some kind of, you know, it's like, I just don't know. I'm not going to make, I'm not going to make my own genre per se, you know, but I'm going to try to study all the greats from all the genres and then try to forget it and make my, the Scott Lowe sound, you know, because like, like I'm not, there's not going to be a new like Scott Lowe genre. Like there's already, our, our genres are pretty set. If we're going to talk about like the big ones, you know, like rock, country, folk, jazz, classical, I'm probably forgetting a couple, but I think, I feel like, you know, like you can kind of put almost all musics into those five maybe, yeah. you know, I mean, I think blues kind of falls between folk and rock, you know, and I think there's all this hybridization. I think the walls of genres have kind of melted away over the years, you know, where I think you can call yourself something, but like, you know, plenty of people will go off and do a song that is in another genre and it could maybe never be be like the B-side, like never really be a song you ever hear or, but I mean, people are always exploring, I feel like. People ask me what kind of music I play and I tell people I play American music because I like to think, you know, like there could be an argument that, you know, music is the greatest contribution to world society this country has made. How so? Explain that. What is a greater export besides maybe, I mean, capitalism sucks, so I don't really think that's it. Um, like, <laughs> is it food? Like, there's some food maybe, some culinary stuff. But other than that, like, I mean, rock and roll is American. Blues music is American. Okay. Jazz is American. Okay, I hear you. You know, folk music is, I mean, there. yes, there is European folk music, but like American folk music Bob Dylan, Woody Guthrie, all that stuff, that is American, you know? And, like, you could maybe say cars, baseball. Like, what else is inherently American that we've that has impacted the world? You know, and, I mean, music, I mean, even the thing, other things I mentioned, some food, baseball, music is way more impactful than those things worldwide. Interesting. You know? Never thought of it that way. I mean, high fructose corn syrup? I don't know, you know? It's like... <laughs> Coca-Cola. <laughs> I mean, you know, and like I'm saying, there is some food, I think. But other than that, like, I mean, can we really take credit for cars? Probably not really. Like, Germany and us are probably about the same. Go back to when you were 15 and you heard Buddy Guy play. Like, you know, when he started playing that guitar, what was it that really resonated with you? Was it the sound, the way he's moving his fingers? The I think like, it was the impact. The, how it affected me, how, how I felt when I heard it, especially like, I mean, a full-on loud band in a packed theater of people that are all lusting to see this artist, you know, or this artist they have so much respect for. It's like there's a vibe that is created around like such a revered individual, okay? And I think I wanted that maybe, mm. you know, and, it's, and it, is it revered, respected, or like, you know, people appreciate your art. You know, that's something you have to think about too, you know. What is, is music art? Is music entertainment? Is music, like, is music emotional? Like, there's all these things that music can be to you. Is it a language? 
Absolutely. And it, but it is also a math problem. You know, it's like putting all these numbers together to impact. What is the Woody Guthrie code? It's like, I make songs. I don't make songs to make you comfortable. I make songs to make you uncomfortable. You know, I want you to feel something. You know, I want to change your perspective a little bit. Interesting. You know, it's, it's more than just like three chords in a story, you know, because like there has to be a landing spot. You know, there has to be a spot where this song will have impact, you know, and like, and, and, and you know, a lot of, a lot of the best songs are kind of personal, you know, so it's almost like a window into a, like I, I used to tell people I used to drive around the country and share my emotions with strangers, <laughs> you know, yeah. explain what you do badly. Right. Yeah. You know, it's like I drive around the country and I like basically like sing these songs about my divorce and my like, you know, the problems I've had in my life. Or the problems we have as a as humanity, or you know, it's it's a very like almost like personal editorial art. Yeah, that's one of the things I respect about musicians is that they really put themselves out there, even more so than a painter. Like I can make a painting and throw it out there, and I I can go hide. I think there's also the like you know like the painter may be like this is the most vulnerable I've ever been in my life, and yet you may just see it as a flower, you know, or see it as what it is. You know, right. it's like your perception to art, you know, it's different for everyone. You know, like my songs affect you differently than they affect my wife or r random guy we've never met before, you know. So it's like, you know, like back to the landing spot, you know, it's like how's this? how does this art land and what impact does it make? And, you know, it's like, you know, they always tell you, like, you shouldn't be sitting there writing songs for a demographic or a, you should write songs from inside. You know, but it's hard because, like, I mean, the music business is such a hard road, you know, because, I mean, like, how many people are actually successful? Right. You probably have a better chance of being a major league baseball player, you know, but I ain't got no game. I, it's a mystery to me. I, I uh, like music in and in and of itself can create emotions without words. Totally. I, and I don't understand that. I, I back when I lived indoors, <laughs> I, I had a record player, and I'd go to the thrift store and buy vinyl. Uh, yeah. And you know, you just I just bought whatever was there. Totally. One of the albums I had was Russian wedding music classical stuff yeah. so i put it on there but some of those songs some of that music would like bring tears to my eyes and i didn't even know why right and i and like you know that i've talked to people about this where like is is it actually genetic you know like it because like why are why are some people better at music you know there's got to be some genetic makeup or why does some music affect you and some doesn't you know because like that russian wedding music dude it could be some reincarnation stuff going on you know, you were Russian, got your wife didn't show up at your wedding or something. You know, it's like, who knows? Interesting. You know, but also like there's a, you remember the old Pioneer cassette tape commercials with the swinging suspension bridge or maybe Maxwell cassette? It was like our cassettes are so loud. Yeah. They make the bridges swing, yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know what? Like that's actually real footage of bridges swinging. It's called, you know, resonant frequency. You know, those bridges like. And it's like really sound, wind, you know, that kind of gets them going. Resonant frequency. Okay, it's like that Russian wedding music 
was a resonant frequency within you for some reason, okay? And whether it is some kind of weird electromagnetic charge, some genetic thing, some reincarnation thing, for some reason it resonates with you, okay? You know, and it's like, how, why, what, why does it make you want to cry and not be joyful? You know, like, why, why does it take us, why does music take us to these places? It's a mystery. It's a mystery, but it's also, like, partially solved, you know, and it's like, you know, like, there's, there's definitely answers, but there's always going to, there's always going to be, like, why does my uncle only love Bon Jovi, you know, or something like that. But that's also, like, branding comes in, you know, and, like, mm-hmm. corporate, you know, like, why is Taylor Swift so huge? You know, she's not doing anything that's, like, revolutionary in music, I don't think. You know, she's taking all the things from all the things she's put onto her onion and packages it in an amazing package that makes white women squeal. Have you <laughs> <laughs> the Beatles used to do that, too, you know? <laughs> I wasn't expecting that. Uh, uh, have you seen the videos where they play music on sand and it creates geometrical shapes. frequency. That's what that is? Totally. I mean, it's like, or like you put water in a speaker and play it in the water, and like different sounds make the water do different things. Yeah. You know? And like, is it, it's affecting your body the same way. It's physics. Metaphysics. Metaphysics. <laughs> it's string theory. That's what I wonder when I think about nature. It's like, does nature sing to oh, yeah. itself? I mean, they've to- they've definitely like put like, alligator clips into a synthesizer and like different like grass sounds different than mushrooms trees sound different you know they have different resonant frequencies going on in them and i mean they say that like you know plants actually make sounds it's very very tiny we just can't hear it you can't hear it yeah but it's like plants are making some kind of vibrational sound you know so it i mean dude i wonder if the trees weep (laughs) i mean dude physics was one of my favorite like subjects in high school and my teacher talked a lot we talked a lot about audio for a couple weeks you know and how like bass waves are like eight ten feet across you know that's why you hear them from a car through into your house you know because those bass waves can just go through walls where the treble and stuff is little tiny waves going around that just die quickly you know, but these bass waves are bold, big, you know. Wow, this is a rabbit hole, man. Oh, yeah, dude. I mean, we could sit here. This could be 20 hours. You know, like I could sit here and talk music with you till the cows come home, and I ain't got no cows. I think it's so interesting that you are, I mean, your appearance, if you look at you, you look like a country boy with a beard and overalls sitting in front of a desk flying tie or half, Or half the Americana country artists in the world. You know, the most of them got pretty shitty hats, so I got cool hats. I think it takes a different kind of intelligence to do what you do. But it's also years and years of experience and training. You know, you haven't put in, I mean, dude, I put in thousands upon thousands of hours of practicing and, and researching. I feel like people in other sports, hobbies, or whatever you want to call it, don't practice like musicians do. I mean, I think the professional sports folks do and people that really make it. You know, like, I'm, dude, I haven't had a W2 job in so long. Like, I would consider myself a professional musician. You know, I mean, yes, I do have this fly fishing camp, but I was doing that long. I mean, I was doing music long before. Like, the music brought me here, you know, because, like, I mean, I, 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 
I think, you know, if like I'm, I'm mid forties, like not a lot of professional athletes make it that long. Right. You know, but they also, I mean, they practice, I mean, you think about like college sports and stuff like that. They're practicing like musicians, you when know, you, when you make an album, like physically make one and sell CDs or vinyl, <laughs> is that profitable? Bro, Rhapsody, Spotify, Pandora killed album sales. There's no album sales. We make albums, like, yes, I will sell, like, I mean, CDs are coasters now. Like, straight up, like, CDs do not, I mean, like, who? they don't even put CD players in cars anymore or in computers or, right. you know, you don't see people walking around with discmans on their waist, you know. True. It's like, it's all digital now. You know, like, vinyl, vinyl has been selling better. Because, you know, it's a very, I don't want to say niche, because it's a very classic way to transport music or purchase music. Um, but, I mean, you know, Rhapsody, Napster, all that stuff, pirating music, basically made it okay for Pandora, Spotify, all these people to basically do the same thing. Spotify CEO is a billionaire. Like When I make a book, I'm essentially just paying for the printing I sell them. Right. I mean, all the work that went into that. And, like, you're looking for the buzz and the hype around it to get better gigs, to get to the next level, right? And I think that's why I make records. But also, you know, it's like I have plenty of musician friends that have never made a record, you know, that mm -hmm. they just play their gigs and play cover songs or whatever. And, you know, it takes some balls to make that first record. Oh, I bet. Is it easier to make a record now than it used to be because of the, like, the everybody has some kind of something on their computer? I mean, yeah, like, I made this whole record in my basement in the water heater closet. Oh, really? Yes. I am the only person on the record. I played all the instruments. Um, and sometimes people say that's not the best way to go about things because you need some outside ears and other perspective. But I've got lots of very talented friends that I was able to kind of send ideas to and be like, what do you think about this? Does this work? You know, like, I don't have a, I didn't. Actually, it's funny. As soon as I quit recording the records, Jack Nolan gave me a drum kit. For mm. Hank, I didn't. So there, there was. I had no drum kit, so all the percussion on the record is like junkyard sandpaper and chains and rattles and all kinds of weird stuff because I didn't have a drum kit, but I wanted some percussion aspects. Oh, kind of like making sound effects for a cartoon or a movie. Totally. So I took like sa sandpaper and a nylon brush. So like, no crap. Yeah. So it's all kind of very like junkyard percussion but then i and then i ended up like adding all these crazy like synthesizers <laughs> it's a crazy little record like but it's very acoustic but it has these weird synths going down beneath to kind of give it this kind of ethereal droney sounds going on but wow that seems like a whole different craft you know playing the guitar is one thing but then doing all that well, I think it's editing. It's a vision, you know. It's like I go into an idea where I hear the song, but I hear it fleshed out. You know, I hear it with other instruments besides my guitar and my vocal. So you 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 hear that overall thing in your head, and then you go try to figure out how to create it. You don't start with like mm -hmm. just one note. And the best music producers or engineers or artists, you know, they have a very clear vein of that thought to their process. You know, like, I remember, I've heard that clear vein term many times because, like, I remember someone said it about Jerry Garcia. He had the 
clearest vein from his heart to his fingertips, mm. you know? And, like, you know, it's, like, being able to, like, get the vision out, you know, I'm sure you know, like, trying to get this vision cooking, you know? it's It, it takes a certain professionality, but it also takes, like, a certain, like, niche like, culty thing, you know? Like, you got to have this buzz, this hype. You know, like you almost got to like David Koresh the people into believing that you're worth a shit, you know? I, I saw this interview with Rick Rubin. Oh, yeah. Where he said, or they were asking him about his abilities, and he, basically he said, I have the vision, and I know what sounds good and doesn't sound good, but he said he had zero technical ability in terms of like all the, the mixing stuff? He's a producer. You know, he's the one that's like, that sucks or that's good or let's try this way or let's... Johnny Cash recovered a Nine Inch Nail song. But he's right. I mean, he's good A lot it. of the time. And, yeah. and, you know, he has a... I think he's very formulaic. You know, he has... Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, he's probably... You know those people that you meet that you're instantly like able to talk to? Or, okay. or, you know, like, I think he's probably a person that's, like, very attainable, accessible, you know? Like, once you're in his studio or he comes to help you with a record, he's going to, you know, as a producer, you want to encourage and pull the best music out of an artist. You know, I'm here recording in my water heater closet with no one to tell me but the water heater that that sucked, you know? But you got Rick Rubin there being like, no, nah, nah, let's do this. Can you hear the water heater turn on in the background? <laughs> I mean, I... I when I, I usually recorded late at night, you know, so it wasn't like there was kids taking baths or laundry going or whatever, you know. So, I mean, or if I, I could hear it coming because you can kind of hear it like fire up and start to sizzle a little bit. That's funny. But like, I also, I tried a lot of recording methods that were kind of harkened back to old school days, like facing away from the mic. Mm. Like they said Robert Johnson, like they put the mics behind him on his record on some of his recordings and he faced a wall you know and so you got reflected the, and, but, it, but it got kind of more of a room sound you know it's like if i back up off this mic a little bit you hear the room more right right you know it's the same and like you listen to some of those old blues recordings and you're like damn it sounds like you can hear the whole damn world right. going on you know so this is your fourth album third um no dude <laughs> really all right a so lot more? should we go backwards or forwards um let's see so i think there's there's a live scott low record there's one two three full length records and an ep so is that five albums i don't know ep is only half a record so four and a half scott low records and i used to have a band called efren which there was three full lengths three or four full lengths and an ep and then previous to that, there's the Scott Leono Day Quartet, because I went to school for jazz for a little while, and I have two quartet jazz records. Um, I was I've been on many many people's records, so wow. I mean we're talking a dozen that I produce myself of my music. Wow. I mean, and that that first jazz record. I mean, actually, there was a band I was in in Washington State called Bags Groove that was a lot of my music. That shit is long gone. Ain't nobody... I haven't even heard that record in probably 25 years. But Are, are they all, like, different genres for the most part? I mean, that first, like, so if we go back to, like, Bags Groove, that first record was definitely, like, jam band, like Grateful Dead, Fish, all day. 
And then I went to jazz school and made two jazz records. And then Efren is, it started out as like an indie folk, kind of very Athens indie rock, very lo-fi, kind of really crappy recording, so I called it lo-fi, I guess. <laughs> um, actually, I recorded the first Efren record into my IMAX microphone. Wow. Like no fancy microphones. Just straight into a little ass microphone on the screen or whatever. And so you can hear like the computer fan kick on and like all kinds of stuff. <laughs> but actually that record got us, I mean, it kind of started the ball rolling with Efren. And Efren, I mean, we toured all over the Southeast for five years, played with J.J. Gray, Larry Keel, all kinds of people, you know, all kinds of folks had booking agents, made a bunch of records, had a good old time. What's that like, like, you know, the Athens scene or touring and, and, you know, we have this or I have this, like, vision of rock and roll, the rock and roll life and all that, you know, sleeping in the floor of a van and, yeah, you know, sucked. staying up all night and sleeping all day or whatever. Yeah, I mean, either, so back in the Efren days, I was, I was the youngest person in the band and I was wild and, I mean... I would walk off stage just drenched from giving, like just rocking out. But it's because Efren started as like a folk band, but it ended as like a whiskey rock, like Skinnered freaking electric guitars. And because that's actually, it was actually like almost like the money took us that way. Because like oh. we couldn't go play folk music in a bar. We could play it in a coffee shop, but you ain't making no money. You ain't taking a band into a coffee shop, you know? It's like, so we needed to get bigger and louder. To get bigger and louder stages. Gotcha. So when you go play in a bar, are they paying you like a flat fee or a cover charge or Every, tips? Everyone's kind of different. You know, it's like some, even around here, around Clayton, like there's a couple of places where you play percentage of sales, like usually a minimum of this and maximum of this of the sales. Okay. Um, there's some that's just a flat guarantee, like three hours for 300 bucks or whatever, you know, ranging... I mean, there's some, it's like, I don't really want to sit here and talk money, but at the same time, like, you know, I mean, if, if I want to play somewhere, I'll take very little money. Like if I like playing there, if they got a good vibe, if they support the art, you know, cause sometimes, you know, sometimes, um, support in a, in a willing audience is more important than dollars to me, you know, because like, I've also kind of thought about, you know, like. Some gigs are pay the bills and some gigs build your career or help you maybe get to that next level. You know, like playing playing these like local wineries and breweries, like am I ever going to really go anywhere? You know, I'm just going to keep playing the wineries and breweries around here. So that's one of the real impetus with making this record. You know, like I was like, <laughs> I was actually thinking – you know, there's some, a lot of our heroes are dying. You know, a lot of the icons of music are, you know, we've kind of reached this point where, like, it's weekly, monthly, where some big music name is passing. You know, and I was like, you know, like, there's a list of folks that I would really love to meet or play a show with. So I wrote it down. I'm not going to tell you the whole list. Mm. But Can I was you like, tell me one name? Yes. And, and the one name is the one that I made this record for. I made this record to try to meet him and play a show with him and it's Taj Mahal 
Taj Mahal is kind of this like beatnik blues guy that was like a hippie, but also like played Delta blues and kind of like was from like very crossover, you know? And like even like later in his life did like Caribbean music and all kinds of stuff, you know? And I kind of like relate to him a little bit. And so I, you know, like starting to play these steel body tricone guitars all kind of falls in line with this idea that I want to meet Taj Mahal. You know? Interesting. And so... Where is he? I don't know. It's funny. My buddy who I play music with, he's like, you know, there's probably an easier way (laughs) than a cheaper way to meet Taj Mahal. (laughs) And that's that he actually has a marlin fishing tournament in St. Croix every summer. Oh, wow. (laughs) It's like 2,000 bucks to go. And I mean, most records cost you much more than that. This record did not cost me much because I did it all. I mean, if you... My computer and the software cost me $1,500, whatever, you know. But, like, other than that, I, dude, to upload a record to Spotify has gotten way cheap. It used to be, like, 100 bucks, and now it's, like, nine ninety nine. Like, So, like, it doesn't really cost me much to get it on Spotify, Pandora, all that stuff, to basically give my music away, you know, but whatever, you know. <laughs> I mean, does that help? Do people find new artists to? I mean, that's the best thing about Spotify and stuff is finding new music. Because their algorithms will kind of steer you into new okay. stuff. Okay. But, I mean, it's like, I I am 46 years old. I am not going to be a full-time touring musician. I have little kids, you know. Like, I basically built a stage out here at Hatch Camp to retire. It's my retirement home, you know. Like, I plan on playing out here till the day I die. And, you know, yeah, maybe if maybe if this album blows up, I would maybe change my perspective and maybe tour more. But right now I'm staying in two-hour radius, you know, like unless it's some amazing gig or festival or something, you know. But, like, I mean, dude, going and playing in, you know, think about this. Say I'm touring around the country and I'm trying to make an impact. I'm trying to get people to remember my name and, and, and appreciate my art. So let's say Charleston. I'm going to tour Charleston. You know, I can't play Charleston every month because then that kills my draw. You know, you have to play there like quarterly. So how many times do I have to play Charleston before I actually start to get a following, you know, without someone finding my music on Spotify or whatever, you know, like, or that being part of it. You know, that's all percentage points of people coming to shows, right? Six times I have to play Charleston before I start making impact. And so we're talking a year and a half. You know, if I'm playing quarterly to make an impact in Charleston, you know, and so, you know, as, you know, I I helped run a booking agency and all kinds of stuff. And, you know, we always talked about, you know, like there's career cities that you can go and play that are going to make you something. And then there's all the cities in between that pay the way to get there. Because like going to play Athens or Austin or Nashville or these big music towns, you ain't making money unless you put in five, eight hundred people in a room, you know. Moving here was an easy decision because I was coming from Athens, and really, if you look at our two-hour radius right here, like, there's a lot of great music towns. Knoxville, Asheville, Greenville, Athens, Atlanta, you know, like, that's a pretty good little ring. Yeah. Within two hours, I can go hit, you know. I haven't been very, like, this album, my goal with this album is to get back in the big cities because I've just been hanging out in the tri-state region right here, like, not really, like, hitting Athens, Atlanta. Did your music change when you moved to the mountains? 
I, when I moved to the mountains, I had just quit drinking. So there's a whole lot. How long ago was that? Four, 10, 10, 11 years, years okay. or something. Um, this year, I think, is 10 years of quitting drinking. I think my wife comes first, and that's a whole other story. But um, so I think I came here with a different perspective on a lot of things. You know, like my life wasn't revolving around the bar and like, you know, because like back in the day, my networking and my job was like hanging out with musicians at the bar, drinking, partying every night, jamming out till five in the morning, whatever, you know, and like I was good at it. I was I could go for days, you know, like I was I was a machine when it came to being a musician, you know, but then, you know, I quit drinking and like, you know, it's like. I, I wasn't, like, a person that quit drinking that was, like, I couldn't be around it. Like, I really didn't care, and it honestly became... It's honestly kind of become my entertainment to watch people, especially from stage, you know. I can watch the arc of the evening. <laughs> the the bell-shaped curve. Yes, the bell-shaped curve <laughs> of the evening. But, you know, I think, yes, my music probably changed, and I think I probably... There was a certain... I don't know if it's maturation or wisdom or whatever that came with me moving up here and slowing down a little bit. I mean, I was still like, I mean, the first couple of years I was here, I was still touring pretty hard. You know, I was going out on three, four week runs all around the country. Even like, you know, we get me and Nicole got engaged on a four week tour up in New York City. And then for our honeymoon, we went on a four week tour. You know, it was like I was still hitting it pretty hard till the kid, little kids came, you know, and I was I was actually out on a two week run by myself up in like West Virginia, Michigan, Ohio or something. And mama was like six months pregnant with Winnie. And she's like, you got to come home. I do not like this, blah, blah, blah. And I think I maybe even canceled the last show and came home early. Because I, I mean, even, even, you know, 20 some years of doing this, I was, I'm still playing these small rooms and whatever, you know, it's like, I may have 12 records and sound like I have some success, but it's like I'm, I've always kind of been hand to mouth and like, but honestly, like maybe to my detriment, it's never really been about the money to me. You know, it's always been about the art and the experience and like hoping to change someone's day. You know, I remember I was talking about I wanted to be a revolutionary musician and then I slowly learned like, you know, if my music can change one person's perspective today, that's a success. Yeah. And that album, the last album you did, or the one that I know of, was the New Vintage? That was it? That was the first one I made when I moved up here. I actually went to the local music store, and they have a little music studio, and it didn't really fit what I wanted to do, but they were like, hey, you should check out this guy, Les Watts. Have you met heard of this guy? Mm-mm. I don't even know if you know this whole story, but mm -hmm. so he lives like at like kind of two blocks off the four way in Tiger. Okay. And there's actually Watts Road a couple blocks north. And he worked for, he like went to MIT and like worked for Sure microphones and Electro Voice microphones like in the 70s and 80s. Then he got a job for Chrysler like designing their stereo systems. This dude was making microphones in his shop behind his house, and he made all the preamps and stuff to match the microphone. And he, was, I went over to his house, and he's like, yeah, I need some demos for all my mics I'm making because we're about to go to market with them or whatever. And I was like, well, I need a new record. 
<laughs> you want my new record to be your demo reel? And so I brought up a bunch of badasses from Athens. This is only like a year and a half after moving up here. And we spent like four or five months in his cabin over there and made the new vintage. And then I shopped it and got a record deal with a little record label out of Columbia, South Carolina. And they actually put out another record for me, Burning Tires, Smoking Guns. You know, and it it's... <laughs> You know, as a musician, you've got to leave a trail, right? It's like you've got to leave chapters or records or songs or... I mean, even as an artist, like, are, are you a musician if you don't have a record? You know, it's like it's you've got to leave a, a mark, right? Even if it sucks. Even if it doesn't get any... If it only... I mean, dude, I just went... I was just logging into my Spotify for artists and I get... I like... It showed me over the past six months I've averaged 33 listeners a month. You know, like, that shit's depressing. <laughs> it's kind of like my Instagram. <laughs> right, but, you know, it's like, but you know what? Like, I ain't going to quit right? because I saw that because I know tonight I'm going to go play and I'm going to change someone's perspective. Right. Because, like, honestly, like, I don't like Spotify. I don't like Pandora, That, but I'm going to put my music on there because that's how you do it these days. And I was actually getting on Spotify artists to like submit to pop playlists. You know, that's the big thing now is like get on Spotify playlists and then you get into people's algorithms that way, you know? Yeah. I, I admit I've, uh, I, I mean, right now my, I don't even have a working radio except for a transistor radio. But back when I lived indoors again, I would listen to Pandora. Yeah. But, you know, you put it on a like Steve Earle right. channel. Right. That's how I found this kind of list of Texas singer-songwriters that I had never even heard of. So it does work. It in does. That, I mean, Pandora is kind of thing where you like you don't really get to pick. Right. You know? Yes. But it is, I mean, you know, I do see it as educational to an extent, but it's also very exploitative to the artist. Yes. You know, where they are paying two hundredths of a cent to zero per play. And it's like that's really what our art is valued at now, you know. How how, how can a musician make money? Is it the shows and the album sales and and you just giving away the streamings? If you can afford to make vinyl, which is eleven ten to thirteen dollars a piece, wow, you know, and then sell them for thirty twenty five thirty at shows. If you can afford to do that, you can make some money that way. But like, how many vinyl? You know, if I go to I go play in Highlands tonight to a hundred people, how many of them are buying vinyl? Maybe single digits, probably. Yeah, right? Yeah. Do people buy CDs still? I think people buy CDs as a uh, just wanting to support you. Right. You know, because like they're like, I don't even know how I'm going to play this, but here's twenty bucks. Right. <laughs> you know, and so I think I think you know merchandising and stuff and branding has always been a big thing especially in the past 20 years of music. You know, like, you got to have merch. you got to have... Dude, like, I remember, like, one of the first times I played at the U-Joint in Clayton. I just got the T-shirts with the station wagon. You remember those? Mm hmm I sold $500 worth of T-shirts that night. Are you serious? Like, it was, like, the second time I ever played U-Joint. And I just got those T-shirts. And I sold, you know, 20, 30 shirts on top of CDs and stuff. Because, you know, 12 years ago, maybe CDs were a little more happening. Yeah. You know, it's almost like if you can get people to buy into the idea 
you could just because they're going to listen to your music online just sell them a $30 sticker mm-hmm. or, or I mean like, I feel like Patreon is kind of the, that thing you know like where like you can send them digital demos or art okay. or are you on Patreon no <laughs> I started one and I've got how many social medias do I have to manage? I know. I mean, it's like as a, as a musician, like I have to manage Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, on top of booking shows, which is not, which is (laughs) booking shows now is like through Facebook, through email, through the phone, you know, it's like 20 different ways to book a show. And then you all have to like somehow get these dates out to the people through 17 different social medias. You know, it's like, I have to be like, you know, talent agent, freaking social media manager, songwriter, record producer, you know, and it's like, I mean, yes, people with certain success. And maybe if I had stayed in certain lanes throughout my career, I would have picked up, you know, because at one point I did have a booking agent and a publishing agent and, you know, a record label and all these things. And if I would have kind of stayed you know, kept my art to where it kind of fit into that program. Okay. But then I, you know, found the whole quit drinking, fly fishing, hatch camp, like all the, I kind of like diversified. I don't know if diversified is the best word or kind of lost focus on that path, I guess. Mm -hmm. And I also, I also think I, I was playing a gig. This was probably, eight years ago and the owner of the venue put a note in my tip jar and it's still in one of my guitar cases and it says please keep making art not just entertainment interesting i man i i identify with that as i you know started all this stuff as a wanting to be a photographer which meant also had to start writing get good at doing layout and design and now I'm podcasting and and on, on top of all of that it's like you're expected to be a good capitalist I don't want to do any of that like you got to pay bills it's funny like the whole capitalist society I don't know if you've seen like the whole new theory about millennials are just like screw this and like van life off grid yeah that's what I'm finding through the hiker trash project. you know they're just like I'm getting out of society yeah. you know and like I mean I think it's the it's it's probably not, it's, we're finally starting to see the fall of this capitalist society, as much as I hate to say it, because, like, the end of that probably looks pretty bad, you know, but, like. I'm ready for it. I am, too. <laughs> I mean, like, let's get back to bartering. Our, I don't need the grid. Let me give you some chicken eggs for a loaf of sourdough bread, <laughs> you know. But, I mean, also, like, w- then what we're doing right now may be obsolete, yeah. <laughs> you know. And yeah. we may go back to books and, you know. Or, or some kind of like telekinetic information sharing, you know. Here's a fun fact. I remember, this is several years ago. This is before the new vintage album, I'm pretty sure. You were playing at one of the places in Clayton. It was Zeppelin's at the time. Upstairs. I mean, that, was, that was like the first year I was here. Maybe even before. I was hosting shows up there before I moved up here. Okay. Well, it was like the night before Thanksgiving, and so it seemed like all the people that weren't living here anymore came home, and they were all, you were playing, and everybody was talking and laughing, and you could barely hear you, and you stopped playing, and you, like, told people, hey, if you want to talk loud and be social, will you just go downstairs, because I'm I'm playing my music. You were serious about it. I remember. I mean, like, and that's the thing. It's like, 
you know, and that's, that's you know, pe- like music has become such a disposable entertainment to people. You know, like it's it's at your fingertips and it's so, like a lot of it has become so background. You know, like mm-hmm. when's the last time you sat down and listened to an album? You know, like that's not a thing anymore. And that used to be like the thing. Yeah. You know, now it's like, and that's why it's like, does, is releasing an album even the best idea in the musical landscape? Do you approach an album like a book, like you writing chapters? Is there a cohesiveness? Yeah, I mean, I mean, especially this album. I feel like this album, like, dude, I mean, I basically like, I don't know. I had a conversation with my friend Brandon about making a new record because he has a studio in Atlanta and him and another prominent Georgia musician were going to produce a record for me. And I was like, all right, sweet. I'm going to start doing some demo work. And, dude, I sat down at those microphones and that album, I mean, I started recording this record around Thanksgiving. And, like, the record was done at Christmas, you know, like maybe the week after Christmas it was done. You know, so in a month I wrote all of the songs and recorded all of the album in, like, four weeks. Why, why, why? Inspiration. Dude, writing a song, like, I will go, there was, like, COVID and the pandemic killed my inspiration. I don't know Mm. what it was. And I think it was, like, I wasn't playing in front of people. I wasn't, I wasn't having the opportunity to change their perspective or impact their lives in any way. And I just was like, what's the point? What were you so inspired by? Was it the this blues trail you've gone down? I think there's I think there's that. I think it was like I I started playing these resonator guitars and found all this cool music from Delta. And honestly, dude, I've been very I don't know why I don't know why it resonates with me, but for some reason Texas acoustic blues musicians have really hit me hard. Um, Blind Willie Johnson, Mace Mance. M-A-N-C, Mance Lipscomb are two of the big ones. And then Mississippi, too. It's like Mississippi John Hurt, Mississippi Fred McDowell. Those four guys are probably some of the biggest influence on this record. I And, like, I really wanted to research, you know, the southeast beyond the Delta, you know, and I think that was an inspiration. I think also age is an inspiration it, or a, the clock's ticking kind of thing. You know, like, I needed to... I needed another chapter in my in my life or my book of art. Okay, I needed to be able to. And like, I think I, ha- I had this vision of this like Appalachian blues, kind of like mixing Piedmont blues and Delta Texas blues with bluegrass and Appalachian music. Not necessarily trying to create my own genre, but like legit. You look up Appalachian blues, and there's like nothing out there really can you play a little bit of that oh yeah machine you know i think i i like the the thing i if i think about appalachian blues the thing that comes to my mind the most is doc watson probably you know because he played a lot of like like his music is very piedmont bluesy like if you listen to like the piedmont blues artist elizabeth cotton fodrell brothers all this stuff it's very similar finger picked finger-picked major blues, like happy-sounding blues, kind of. And, you know, like, I definitely learned, like, Deep River Blues. Like, I learned a bunch of Doc Watson songs, like, in a couple weeks, like, before I recorded this record. And then 
forgot them, wrote a bunch of music. But yeah, let's play some guitar. Yeah, because that is a... I, I don't know that I've ever even seen... A guitar like this? Yes. It's metal. Can you just describe, like... So this is a Regal Tricone Resonator guitar. It is a steel body with a wooden neck, ebony fretboard. It has frets like a standard guitar. But the body's made of metal, and then it has these aluminum cones inside that the strings and go over the bridge that rest in the aluminum cones. And when you play the guitar, it makes those aluminum cones kind of push air. They kind of flex a little bit. So it's almost like a non-electric speaker. Okay. You know? Like a speaker has a cone in it that yeah. pushes air. Yeah. It pushes yeah. the frequencies, right? So this was kind of the answer, like, before amplifiers and electric guitars even though now i have an electric pickup on this guitar so i can plug it in and play it in live settings now loud enough over a bar or whatever what is the history of or like who 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 was playing this type of guitar i mean a lot of the delta blues guys were like i mean you, i think about like sunhouse and buck white and i mean a lot of a lot of like the there was kind of this like Oh, what were they called? Riffle bands? Where it was like, eh, Birdie. The dog's trying to get in. Yeah. Um, she can come in probably now that she's calmed down a little bit. Come on in, Birdie. Birdie. Maybe stop barking. You're going to hit every mic cable and everything in the way, though. <laughs> There's been a lot of dogs in this podcast. I'm sure. Birdie, get her licking you on the mic. Birdie, get down. So, yeah, um, it's a very Delta Blues kind of guitar, but I think, you know, we're, you know, almost 100 years from, like, the OG Delta Blues guys, you know, and so the technology's probably a little better. Um, and I think there's, you know, going back to, like, there's been so many, like, the musical history and trail is so wide and varied that, like, people have used this kind of guitar for a lot of other things, you know, besides the blues. Even old Oliver Anthony is playing a resonator guitar in that video where it has, like, the metal circle on it, mm -hmm. but it has a wooden body. But, like, the wooden bodies on those, like, like, really the sound comes from that metal cone in there. Okay. And, you know, the, the one he was playing is a single cone. It's like a 10-inch big cone under it where this has three little cones. So it's just a little bit different sound. Okay, let's hear it. Um, why don't we just go and play little samples or what? I don't know. Play us. It's almost like a between a guitar and a banjo it totally is i mean like the banjo kind of has the same vibe where the banjo almost has like a drum head yeah with the bridge resting on the drum head and so the strings go through the in through the bridge and make that the drum head kind of push the air you know so it does have a kind of similar sound you this is a little more metallic where the banjo yeah. has a little bit more drum snap to it almost snare like a snare drum do you, um, I mean, we didn't, I didn't ask you beforehand, but do you want to play something off your new album? Yeah. Like just on the spot? Sure. Sweet. Um, maybe I should just play the title track, right? 
the Appalachian blues. Okay. Nice. I wish Hank was down here. My little boy Hank knows all the words. Really? Yeah. That's four, awesome. four years old. And he's, he literally, there was a couple he had wrong. Like the the first line in the chorus is, uh, work so hard to afford you a box and hole, like work so hard to die, basically. But he thought it was work so hard to afford you some mold. <laughs> <laughs> and we had to we had to change that <laughs> a little bit. That's funny. All right, let's try this Appalachian Blues. All right. Water so low, these fish gone drown. They might stand up, start crawling around town. Grocery so high, got to work all night. All this work's covering up my light. Work so hard to afford you a box and hole. I'll be poor just working on my soul. Work so hard to afford you a box and hole. I'll be poor just working on my
I was so into it, dude. I for, I was gonna make some video. <laughs> I just <laughs> forgot. <laughs> well, that's a good sign. That's a good one. Nice. Yeah. So when does this album release? March first, twenty twenty four. We got a whole. Uh, I'm gonna be dropping some music videos and some new photos and some. Let's see, we got a bunch of CD, oh, CD. We got a bunch of album release to parties. We got March 1st at Tallulah Adventures, March 2nd in Athens at the Foundry. And then we do like, oh man, it's like Murphy, Blue Ridge, Dahlonega, Atlanta. You can all find all that on my social medias. And are you are you making CDs and albums? No, nope. just vinyl? Nothing. Nothing? Just digital. I can't afford vinyl. Gotcha. Um, I mean, I'm in talks with like a, there's like a vinyl club where like they pay to make the vinyl and they keep half of it and distribute it into their club um, for artists that need help and whatnot. And what? so, but, but vinyl takes like eight months to make. So it's going to, if vinyl's coming, it'll probably be Christmas. What's the best way for people to support your art? I wish, uh, I mean, like, Come to shows, um, you know, follow on all the social medias because, like, the bigger the social media footprint, the more reach you have in the algorithm, and that's how people blow up, you know, go follow. Like, some of the biggest names in music in the past couple of years were made on TikTok, you know? True. And so I think, like, that's why I've been, I, you probably noticed I've been putting some heat on that. You know, like, I'm trying to post multiple times a day, and, like, I've had a couple of videos spike to seven, ten thousand views, you know, but, like, you know, it's like, that's not, I mean, that's not viral, you know, that's just yeah. a good, that's a good effort, you know, yeah, but. The, the Hiker Trash podcast has one of your songs on the intro and outro, and, you know, we've got, like, over a thousand downloads now, and I'm, like, super excited, but that's not even enough to qualify for advertisers. Well, think about this. Like, Spotify pays .2 hundredths of a cent per play, so your thousand plays, you're going to get, like, 10 cents? Thanks, man. Yeah. You're I mean, welcome. <laughs> you know, and I get, like, I get, like, 2% of that. So, wow. so yeah, dude, making, making a living in music is tough, you know? It's like I feel like there's a certain level where you can become self-sufficient, and I had that figured out for a while. Now I have, you know, the fly fishing business here to kind of offset that a little bit. But and I'm also, the concert series? Yeah, and, you know, like, well, the concert series here, like, I really yeah. don't make any money doing that. Okay. I basically pay the artists out 100%, you know, because I know how it is, and I've definitely been some really big paydays for some artists out here. And it's like... Uh, ten bucks a head or something. It's like twenty dollars suggested donation, okay. but I always say it's OBO. I pretty much have made all my business that uh, or best offer. Okay. Because like I don't want, I don't want money to be the reason that stops you from enjoying yourself or coming to a concert or going fly fishing or coming to see me play music like or buy my album. Like I would rather it not be about money and be about you enjoying it and me feeling like I've accomplished something. Gotcha. You know, so like if people want, you know, like I do have some CDs and I'm actually, my old record label just told me they found a box of vinyl of the new vintage, which like I've been out of those for eight years, you know, but they just found a box of like 30 of them. So we're about to have a little sale on some Scott Lowe vinyl. I may just take them to shows because honestly, people are always asking. I'm actually probably going to take a bunch of my 
tax money this year and buy a bunch of t-shirts and merch and stuff because like that's it's almost like investing in my own business right you know it's like because i mean i'll i'll sell a couple t-shirts a night you yeah. know and that's you know if i'm paying seven eight bucks a shirt you know i'm tripling that money usually yeah. you know so i don't know it's it's how to support me i don't i don't really the music the music business is so whacked you know since like because album sales used to be the way you know, but like, there's no album sales anymore. Yeah. You know, it's all streaming revenue and ticket sales. You know, and it's like, where am I? I I can't. I, there, there's been a few shows in the past years that actually tickets were for sale. Usually, it's just like paid from the venue or, you know, a door deal where like whatever people, ten bucks to get in that venue or, like playing here, it's like twenty dollars. I just put a bucket out and it's twenty bucks suggested donation. You know. Because back to it, I don't want to be like, I, I mean, yes, it's a capitalistic society, but I also feel like love and kindness and art and music and nature are more of a valuable commodity and more of a valuable asset to your existence than a dollar bill is. Yeah, I think there's an unspoken vibe or collective thought that music should be free to hear. You know, or that's kind of what we've been I mean, accustomed let's to. Let's go back to the thousands of millions of hours I put into it. Yeah. I put in more work into this job than probably most people put into most jobs. Yeah. You know, and like I'm literally just did like a month of working full time on a record and now I'm going to give it away basically. Yeah, that's how I feel about my work. Right. I think that's one of the things that feels important or meaningful about this project is to go out there and explore and find people like you that are doing it out of passion and it's like you can't not do it yeah. and 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 I mean I told you when I saw about a guy it was over and if we just rely on commercial ways to find those people or we won't find them I mean I think there are certain people that have found the kind of key to the like finding this stuff and I feel like now it's becoming a little more more mainstream to be it's almost like back to like, uh, you know, like the record. Like, what was what was the um, what was the movie about the record store? Like the gatekeepers and the vinyl. Um, God, was it Kevin? It wasn't Kevin Bacon. It was uh, I don't know. Jack Black was in it. Mm. I, don't, I don't remember what it was called. But anyway, um, you know, they were kind of like these like snooty record store guys are like, Oh, you want the like secret stuff. huh? Oh yeah. But now it's like, you know, like you think, I think about like, like some of the biggest names in like the music world are like Zach Bryan, Noah Kanan, Hozier. All these guys were made on Twitter and TikTok, And you know, like they, they immediately have like millions of followers that they freaking like put a little something out there and these millions just like grab it, you know? And it's like, I think getting to that point of like, you know, like I have thousands of followers and, you know, a percentage of those, every time I drop a little morsel of art, they like scoop it up. But, you know, it's like, how do you get those, those like diehard fans or like, you know, the cult, right? I keep saying cult and it's kind of like that. It's like a following, right? Mm -hmm. It's funny because like, that's what they call cult followers, right? Yeah. And it's like, you think about like, like, I think like the Oliver Anthony was, Anthony thing was very culty to me, you know, like it was like a very like niche, like turn the knife into a few people, you know? And it, and I, I don't feel like it was out of art. I feel like it was out of anger and division. Okay. 
but I don't, I don't want to talk. I, I really think I really, I respect the guy. I feel like, you know, he was just doing his thing, you know, and it has been turned into a whole lot of other things. I would love to see that guy, you know, keep pushing, but I don't. But anyway, you know, it's like. When I was uh, doing art, or like not just photography, but like paintings and carvings and things like that, I always used to say that the only critics I care about are the ones who are opening their checkbook. Totally. Yeah. And I mean, but it's also like, it's like, is that like, I, I, I feel like, you know, like, yes, music, there's, it's hard to put a price on art. You know, it's so subjective, you know, it's like, why, why is Taylor Swift worth way more than me? You know, it's like, I can play the shit out of the guitar compared to her, you know? Yeah. It's a mystery to me. But it's like, also like, I mean, I don't, I don't want to knock Taylor Swift for all around anything. Like, I really respect all. And that's, I think, I think I have a perspective where like, I know a lot of people that are really snobby, like, screw that. Or like, that's just garbage. And I really like... I, I mean, I don't turn on either of those people I just mentioned, but I respect them. It's kind of the same way I feel about religion. You know, it's like I like it as long as you're not trying to force it down my throat, you know, and yeah. I like it as long as you're being kind to everyone else around you. I like what the hard work represents. Totally. And, I mean, I mean, dude, I've got the miles on my fingers to show it, you know, and, um, I mean, how many vehicles have I driven into the ground and, you know, like... <laughs> Your truck's painted like a trout. Yeah. Do you? Hey, will you read that quote you read to me earlier from uh, Hunter S. Thompson? I've never heard that. I think it's so awesome. Yeah. So I read this. I heard this quote long, long ago. Um, the music business is a cruel and shallow money trench, a long plastic hallway where thieves and pimps run free, and good men die like dogs. There's also a negative side. <laughs> Hunter S. Thompson. Uh, dude, I just want to thank you for being on this. Yeah, I, dude. It, uh, it, it, you know, this is the first interview, and so I don't know where this is going to lead, but it's And it's, I feel like we just, firing. like, touched ice, tips of iceberg. Yeah, we could do this every week. Oh, yeah. Like, we could, I could, I, dude, I could legit, I probably should start my own music podcast. You should. Because, like, I could literally, like, I find new stuff that I want to tell people about every week. Like, just finding those Fodrell brothers that my buddy sent me. Like, they're not on Spotify. Right. Like, I found someone posted their their album on YouTube of videos of just the album cover, but it's not on Spotify, YouTube, music, or anything. It's, like, legit, like, I found something that I want to share with everybody. It's, like, these three brothers that play blues together from Central North Carolina that, like, no one's ever heard of. You That's know? the people I want to find. Well, I, 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 they were still playing music in the 80s. I don't know if that means now, but. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, Ronnie, good to see you. Thanks for joining us on this episode of the Local Exposure Podcast. Hey, make sure to check out our other series called Hiker Trash. You can find it on your favorite podcast app or at our website, localexposuremagazine.com. This project was made possible by a gift from Sarah and Ron Johnson. If you would like to support this or a future project, send us an email at localexposure.contact at gmail.com. Thank you and see you next time. Sounds so cool. I know it does, doesn't it? <laughs>